Welcome to the U.S. National Privacy Legislation Podcast. This is Joy Mason and Triago, Managing Director of the Association for Data and Cyber Governance. We are the only professional association that combines all aspects of data and cyber governance for the governance, risk, and compliance professional. You can find us online at adcg.org. It gives us great pleasure to host this event led by two outstanding moderators, Jerry Buckley and Jody Westby. Jerry is a founder of Buckley LLP, a national financial services law firm based in Washington, D.C. Prior to entering private practice, he served as minority staff director of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee. Jody is CEO of Global Cyber Risk LLC and chairs the American Bar Association's Privacy and Computer Crime Committee. We have some really great guests lined up today and in the future, so please be sure to rate us and subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode. This is Jody Westby, CEO of Global Cyber Risk, and I'm here with my co-host, Jerry Buckley, founder and partner of Buckley LLP. We have a giant with us today who's helped shape privacy and cybersecurity policy as much or more than any single individual, Bruce Schneier. Bruce calls himself a public interest technologist, working at the intersection of security, technology, and people. He's a fellow and lecturer at Harvard's Kennedy School, a board member of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and the Chief of Security Architecture at Interrupt, Inc. Bruce, welcome. Thanks for having me. Sure. From your and David Bannister's book, The Electronic Privacy Papers, to your monthly cryptogram blog, you have had your head in privacy for what, maybe 30 years, I guess? Your website page on the Electronic Privacy Papers states that the book, quote, paints a clear picture of government policies toward encryption and privacy and how they will impact individuals and companies involved with the Internet. Well, that book was published in 1997. So I'd like to start off by asking you if you could give us a high-level view of where you see government policies toward encryption and privacy today. Have they changed much in your view? I mean, it's kind of neat to see you mention that book. I haven't thought about that book in a couple of decades. It was it was a mid-90s source book on government documents related to privacy. Yeah. I've been thinking about data and privacy and encryption before that. My first book, Applied Cryptography, 1993, talks a lot about privacy. Yeah. So yeah, for the past 30 years, I've been working and data and privacy. And yeah, there have been a lot of changes. Has government policy changed? It's hard to know, right? I mean, the NSA has always been about spy on everything. Yeah. Uh, Justice Department has increasingly wanted access to our data. In those three decades, corporate surveillance has exploded to the point where, you know, Google rivals any national spy agency and what they know about us, Google, Facebook, to lesser extent, Amazon. Things change, but things stay the same. There have been a lot more sensors, right? Internet of Things is the internet of of sensors and things that spy on us. The amount of data about us that we put on the uh, in digital form, right? All communications is digital these days, basically. Mm -hmm. And the information that's collected by other things 
about us, the corporate databases of information about us that's being used to make decisions, mm-hmm. right, used to discriminate against, it's exploded everywhere. Right? And better, I would look at Shoshana Zuboff's book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, sort of where we are today. I don't know if I imagined that in the early 90s. I don't think I did. Yeah, well, you raised some very good points. I want to bring Jerry into the conversation. Jerry? And thank you. And it is an honor to have you with us. You really are a giant in this area. And, and we really appreciate you giving us the time of sharing with our audience. And it took us forever to schedule this. So it's good that we finally got together. I'm glad. <laughs> now, in March 2016, you wrote an essay entitled Data is a Toxic Asset, So Why Not Throw It Out? in which you say that saving data is dangerous because it's hard for companies to secure. You discuss big data as one reason why companies save data and note that companies and governments are still punch drunk on data. Do you feel the same way today? The promise of big data was really save everything and figure out how to use it later. It's not data for archival purposes. It's not data to understand what happened. It's data to guide future decision-making. And the thought is that if you have enough data, you can just like figure out the answer. That seems both to be not true and short-sighted. That a lot of what we know about the data companies have about us, that most of us is useless to predict when I want to buy a new refrigerator, when I'm going to vacation in Hawaii, or even when I'm going to commit a crime. Mm -hmm that most of the data is not useful. And it's also a liability. If someone hacks into you know, Equifax or Marriott Hotels or you know, any of the company, the big databases about our, that have our data, and it gets stolen, those companies lose. They lose money, uh, there are lawsuits, there's stock price losses. So the data is a liability. So instead of thinking of it as an asset, we need to think of it as an impaired asset. And I like to use it as a toxic asset. It, you know, it's like sludge. I mean, yeah, it's got some value maybe, but it, it has a lot of downsides too. And if we got more of us to delete data that wasn't immediately valuable or obviously valuable, I think we'd end up being a lot safer. Yeah, that's right. You know, in that same piece, that 2016 piece about data's toxic asset, you also state, We need to regulate what corporations can do with our data at every stage, collection, storage, use, resale, and disposal. And what you just said a moment ago about corporate surveillance and Google and Facebook and Amazon and this massive amount of data that they've gathered on us, it's just so spot on. What are your thoughts today? Are there type technologies that can be leveraged to give people more control over their data? Or do you still see government largely needing to regulate this space? Right. The technology is lawmaking. Is the technology we use to uh, regulate what human beings can do in our society more than any actual tech tech? I mean, people don't rob your house. It's not because of your great burglar alarm. It's because of the laws in our country. And that's why you know, we live in the society we live in. I, I wrote that around the same time I wrote my book, Data and Goliath, about data and surveillance. And there I do make the point that government intervention is necessary, that the market pushes towards more surveillance. This is, again, Zuboff's point in surveillance capitalism. 
that left to its own devices, the market really invades our privacy at every moment. And there's no backstop to that because all of the problems, most of them are externalities to the company. Right? They affect us, not the, the data collectors. And when I talked about those four different areas, I was pushing it back against the meme at the time. I think it still exists that any regulation should regulate use and not collection. And this is what the big companies say, because they know if they, as long as they can collect it, they can figure out how to use it to get around the rules. But if they're prohibited from collecting it in the first place, then they're stuck. So they would always push any regulation can't touch collection, has to only affect use. I think that's a mistake. I think that every aspect of the process, collection, aggregation, use, resale, disposal, storage and disposal, needs to be regulated. Government is the missing ingredient here. It's the backstop against corporate power. It's how we act collectively as citizens and not individually as consumers. And it's how we solve collective action problems. And that's what this is. So I do still believe that government is the missing piece and that the sort of small L libertarian, you know, let's just design society for the benefit of a, a bunch of tech billionaires is kind of a dumb way to organize society. Well, let me ask you a quick question as follow on on that. I mean, government has an advantage with Google, Facebook and Amazon amassing this amount of surveillance data on people because then they can go subpoena it. Do you think the government would be willing to get into this regulation space? So this is hard, right? And government does act as a surveiller. Yeah. Now, the government is not monolithic. You know, it's not one person with one uh, motive. Mm-hmm. It's complicated. I think that uh, government will get involved in this. I think they will because the Internet of Things. We can talk about that later. But yes, it is right now hard. And it's the quote that uh, you quoted me, that government is also punch drunk on our data. <laughs> they kind of want it too. But, you know, the subpoenas aren't as, it's hard to know exactly how much they're getting. Certainly Google knows more about you than the government does. And Google is less regulated how they can use it than the government is. Now, they have less power. A government is inherently a more powerful entity than a corporation. But in our you know, tech-centric world, corporations effectively make law because they limit what we can and can't do. And if you can't do it on the tech platform, it might as well be illegal because you can't do it. If the car doesn't go above 55 miles an hour, it doesn't matter what the law says. The car doesn't go faster than 55 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. So, And this is Larry Lessig's point, that tech makes effective law by constraining what is possible. Yeah, that's what I thought about immediately when you said that was Larry Lessig and code is the law. You know, in, in that book that we referenced before, Data is a Toxic Asset, that essay you wrote, uh, you said, we can make corporate executives personally liable so they know there's a downside in taking chances. We can make the business models that involve massively surveilling people the less compelling ones simply by making certain business practices illegal, which is your point you've just been making. Probably not simply, but yes, what we need to do is incent the correct behaviors. Solar winds is a good story here. 
And Solar Winds is a private equity funded company owned by Tama Brava. It's a Brazilian billionaire. And what that private equity firm does, what a lot of private equity firms do, is find companies that have an existing customer base that are sticky, right? The customers tend to stick with them. And they make their product and or service as sucky as absolutely possible without losing customers. Yeah, they don't want to spend money on security. Right. And so they don't want to spend money on security. So here is SolarWinds, which effectively pushed risk onto its customers without telling them in the name of short-term profits. Mm-hmm. So that's the behavior the market incents. If we want the CEO to behave differently, we need to make other things legal and other things illegal. And in my personal dream, it's not just the company gets fined because you know, in the US, most fines are you know, costs of doing business, but the CEO becomes criminally liable. And a CEO is not going to risk going to jail for some quarterly earnings. You know, that really feels like a better way of incenting the correct behavior. That and perhaps a clawback of their bonuses over the period of time. Uh, I, mean, I mean, here, I tend to look at the EU. Right? The EU is the regulatory superpower on the planet right now. And they will levy fines on companies that the companies notice that are not less than the attorney's fees. And they are changing behavior because of that. When I, when GDPR, the European Data Privacy Regulation, first came into force, I was working for IBM. And IBM said, we are going to enforce GDPR everywhere because that is easier than figuring out who a European is. I mean, here's a company that made a, a business decision to put, move, put this regulation around the world because that was a cheaper alternative than only applying it selectively as a law required. That was interesting. I mean, that shows you that a good law in a big enough market moves the world. Well, that's a powerful point. What about governance surveillance? Edward Snowden exposed you know, a massive surveillance campaign by the government, and the New York Times recently ran an article about the government still using a partly expired Patriot Act provision to get business records on persons subject to surveillance. The article states, and I'll quote it, while the program is carried out by the National Security Agency, the FBI has access to raw streams of data gathered by it for targets deemed relevant to an open national security investigation. And the Bureau's analysts can sometimes use that information for ordinary criminal investigations unrelated to terrorism or espionage. That's the end quote. The FBI now is supposed to notify the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court when one of its analysts searches and views information about an American within the warrantless surveillance repository. Now, in 2019, they said this occurred once. But in a 2020 report, they said it actually occurred 91 times in 2019. So we have the temptation to use government surveillance to shortcut investigations. And senators like Ron Wyden continue to press for more controls. What are we really talking about? Is how far the government should be allowed to invade citizens' privacy? What are your thoughts on this? A lot of this shows you how little we actually know, right? How much of this happens in secret. Yeah. And that's what's toxic here. I mean, we could have informed debates about government surveillance. You know, we already give the government the legal authority 
to pry into our most personal lives. We do that because it's how they solve crimes and we want crime solved. But we have a process to ensure they don't abuse that. And that's the warrant process. And we can argue whether it works or not, and whether it needs fixing, and that, that's all in the detail and all important. But that's basically a security process to prevent government overreach. And that's what we got. And when these laws are passed or interpreted and used in secret, we just don't know what the government is doing. And that's where the danger is. Yeah. So one time, 91 times, I don't know if any of those numbers are true. And we don't, you know, we, we remember from the Snowden documents that one request for government access to data was a request to Verizon for everything. I know. So it's one request, but it's a it's millions of people. Yeah. It's really hard to understand what's going on. And it's the secrecy surrounding these things, which is very anti-democratic. We could have these discussions. What are the proper limits of government in a national security context, in a law enforcement context? But the other New York Times article that that we can mention is uh, the government uh, using uh, the NSA using, I think, Danish computers to spy on on other governments. Now, is that okay? Can we spy on allies? Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. But, you know, these are things being done in our name without our knowledge. And that's not very democratic. Another area of tension between government and citizens' privacy is encryption. Bill Barr, when he was attorney general, was pushing for the government access to encryption keys. In your essay, The Value of Encryption, discuss the value of encryption to personal privacy, protection of dissidents, its value to journalists and attorneys, its value to the government in protecting your government data and systems, to lawmakers, law enforcement, value to the national security. Have your views on encryption changed at all? So if anything, it's gotten it's gotten worse. You're reading what I wrote there. It's all about data. It's all about privacy. It's all about you know information about us. Computers have changed since then. Right now there are computers, everything's a computer. It's your car, it's power plants. So now privacy is national security, right? Data protection. When you think about Bill Barr wanting to you know, hack into iPhones to catch criminals, mm-hmm. that's now really dangerous for society. Because as long as an iPhone is in the pocket of every, well, I don't know, a judge and police officer and CEO and elected official and nuclear power plant operator and voting official, that these must be secure for national security. And we cannot afford to make these things vulnerable, to allow the FBI or anybody else access to it. And that is simply just too dangerous. And that's changed. That's relatively new. That in fact, the security of your iPhone means the security of the power grid, which means the security of the nation. Well, I, you know, I talk about the autocratic advantage. Countries like China and Russia, Russia that control all of the communications in and out of the country can monitor everything. You know, they do know how infected their private sector systems are because they, they can have access to them anytime they want. I'm not convinced they know that. What makes you think having uh, access? I, mean, I think the NSA's implants are pretty good. I bet, uh, you know, just as Russia's all over our power grid, we're all, all over their power grid. And I'm not convinced they know all about it because they, have, they monitor everything. Mm, that's interesting. Well, I mean, yes, they're able to, they're able to monitor their citizens better. I mean, China's really good at suppressing dissent, but more importantly, they suppress organization. 
They're okay if you criticize, just don't organize. Russia is a little bit different than what they do. And there is some surveillance advantage, you know, China, where basically there isn't this sharp demarcation between government and corporate. They're very much the same. In a way, in the United States, there is this separation and there is a legal process and there are rules that the government, I think by and large, does follow. Well, I'd push back a little bit on how much NSA really knows about our systems, because if the government knew so much, why didn't they figure out solar winds? I mean, it took FireEye to reveal solar wind. So that's a complicated question, and it's not a matter of knowing so much. I mean, that, I think it's a very simplistic way of looking at it. Yeah. Uh, solar winds was designed uh, by the Russians to uh, take advantage of our blind spots. Russians use staging servers in the United States because the NSA is prohibited by law from eavesdropping on them. And they uh, they built they built their attack to evade U.S. detection systems. That's what any good attacker would do. I'm sure the NSA builds its attacks to evade Russian detection systems. Attack is easier than defense by a lot. Well, part of it too, Bruce, was they were all looking at the same picture. They were all looking using SolarWinds, so they were all looking at the same picture. So they didn't uh, notice. I'm not sure what you mean. Who, who's the they and what's what's the picture? The, the government agencies are all using SolarWinds. I'm, so, but SolarWinds isn't a system to detect this kind of thing. So, SolarWinds is, is a network management system. It's a network monitoring system. It doesn't. It doesn't find security vulnerabilities. That's not what it does. Then, anyone's listening to SolarWinds customer, your security's not done. You need to actually get security stuff. Oh, I see what you're saying. That it gave them network monitoring, but it wasn't designed to identify security issues. No, that's that, that's not what it does. I get it. Okay, I give you that. In my conversations with people, I frequently hear about the U.S. government asking for backdoors to technology products. I worry some companies may allow that. This is a real privacy threat. We saw what happened when NSA found vulnerabilities in major software products and never told the software vendors so they could exploit those backdoors for intelligence gathering. Then after the shadow brokers leaked valuable NSA cyber tools, the WannaCry and NotPetya attacks use some of those tools to attack systems and exploit these vulnerabilities, causing massive business interruptions. What are your thoughts about government backdoors to technology products? Does this topic get enough visibility? I'm not sure what enough visibility is. I'm not sure I can measure that. And it's what I said before, right? that this is now a matter of national security, that we really must adopt a defense-dominant strategy, that not securing these devices, these systems, these uh, communications platforms is incredibly dangerous. But are you and allowing back doors is incredibly dangerous to our national security that we cannot okay. afford to be that sloppy. It I wanted simply, to be sure I understood you. You're saying back doors are not good. The government should not have back doors. Right. It, it is bad for national security for the government to have back doors. It is too dangerous. It yeah. is simply something we can't do. We must well, improve defense even at the expense of offense. It'll also drive our industry offshore. Eh, I think that's largely overblown. I mean, you're not going to buy some Malaysian Apple iPhone knockoff. You're going to buy the cool thing. I mean, we say that. I think that's largely untrue. It's a, it's a nice argument, but, uh, but my guess is people are going to roll over. I mean, yeah. have you gone to the offshore Facebook because they're spying on you? It kind of happens. <laughs> <laughs> Should we all start using the Harmony OS from Huawei? <laughs> there you go. You go offshore, you go to China. Is that better? <laughs> yeah. So 
you say in your essay, The Eternal Value of Privacy in 2006. So now God, you've been reading my old stuff. It's, yeah, I'm, I'm impressed. All your stuff. You discuss big data and the line I've heard so many people say to me about government access to communications traffic. Now, I don't have anything to hide. I'm not doing anything wrong. But you explained how foolish that was. So I commented in one of my own articles that people didn't really seem to grasp the concept of big data until Cambridge Analytical scandal came along. And it was revealed that Trump campaign was able to access data on 87 million Facebook users just through an app. Do you think the public now grasps big data? I largely don't. Yeah, I don't either. I mean, this is not, this has never been a political issue. It's never been a campaign issue. I think people understand that companies like Facebook are spying on them, but don't really understand the details. I think people largely don't understand how tech works. I don't think there's anything wrong here. I mean, in our very complex technological society, we should expect that the tech isn't out to harm us and we don't have to understand it. So a couple of days ago, I got on an airplane. It was a big deal getting on an airplane. Yeah. And I know nothing about aircraft safety, aircraft maintenance, crew training, right? pilot rest, um, engine design, none of that, absolutely nothing. And I was able to go on that airplane without any worry about all that because that is handled for me. There is a government agency that establishes regulations about all of those things. And it is basically my proxy. So I don't have to study that. Same thing with uh, walking into a drugstore. I don't know, don't know any pharmacology and that's okay, right? So I don't think people should be expected to understand the details of big data and privacy and surveillance and what's being collected, how it's being used, and how it's harming them. They should be able to live their lives without having that level of expertise. But then they won't be able to make privacy choices or really understand how it's infringing on their privacy. I think exactly. Just like I don't have to make airplane choices. I don't have to say, tell me the aircraft. How old is it? Who built it? What's the maintenance record? I don't have to do any of that. I don't have to make any choices because the expertise is handled for me. Exactly. You know, Bruce. It should be the same way. Bruce, you weren't worried until the pilot said we're making our final approach to the runway, right? <laughs> I wasn't worried at all. <laughs> I was worried at all. Right? I mean, you're right, because there's a computer doing that automatic uh, level setting. It's magic as far as I'm concerned, but it works. And that's because the FAA makes sure it works and makes sure it's safe. It's really important. You know, Bruce, Amazon recently said it would indefinitely prohibit police departments from using facial recognition tool. And Apple announced its transparency initiative. The ACLU called this a huge win for privacy. Do you agree? I think it is. I think it's it's dangerously narrow, though. What I'm really what we're worried about is sort of three stages of, of this technology: identification, aggregation, and discrimination. Identification is how, how we figure out who you are. And face recognition is one of many technologies that does that. So it could be uh, recognizing your gait, recognizing your iris or fingerprints with a, a very high definition uh, camera. It could be the Mac ID that your phone broadcasts. Whatever the technology is, it identifies you. So we're picking one technology that's being used a lot, face recognition, 
and saying we should have less of that. That's good. But it really is just a piece of the problem because the spies will just use something else. So I want to, I'd rather see broader rules about remote identification, I mean, ways to identify you without your knowledge and consent, whatever they are, of which face recognition is one of them. And then we look at rules about taking that identity and merging it with other data about you, and then rules about what sorts of decisions can be made. I mean, is it okay for you to walk into a department store, be identified, however you're identified, the data being merged with, with data about your income, your purchasing habits, and you are now treated differently by the salespeople in the store depending on the result. Are we okay with that as society? Those are the conversations we need to have. Yeah. Identifying, you know, banning face recognition is a small piece of that. Do you think Congress would go that far to even entertain those thoughts and if it was going to put forward a federal privacy law? The U.S. Congress is so dysfunctional, I can't imagine it doing anything. I know. Sorry. Again, Europe is the regulatory superpower here. I mean, if stuff happens, it's happening in two places. It's happening in Europe and it's happening in the states. Really New York, California, Massachusetts are the three states that are at the forefront of all of these. Yep. Right? The federal government's going to come at the end. Well, we're out of time, but this has just been fabulous. It's such an honor to have you spend time with us and share your thoughts and to do it in an impromptu manner where you didn't even know what we were going to ask you. It's just been fabulous. Thanks what so fun much. is it if you give people the questions first? <laughs> uh, because some people want to organize their thoughts, but you know, you. I, I like disorganized thoughts. <laughs> you always have organized thoughts. But thank you so much, Bruce. And I know Jerry. Uh, I join, uh, join and thank you. It's been a great session. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us this week on U.S. National Privacy Legislation. Make sure to visit our website, adcg.org, where you can subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Cast, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in what you heard today, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the podcast, that would help us out too. Also, you might want to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Data and Cyber Governance Alert, which you can do right on our homepage. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode where we dig deeper into the possibilities of U.S. national privacy legislation.